Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. A little bit different today. We've got a good and a crazy, and the middle martini is decide for yourself whether it's good or bad. There's some elements of both there, so we'll explain as we get closer. But, Jim, let's start with our good martini. And one of our bad martinis last week, it was on the day you went to Gettysburg, Alexander and I said the bad martini was President Trump, or maybe it was the crazy martini, was President Trump saying that starting June 10th, he would start imposing 5% tariffs on all Mexican imports, and if things didn't improve, he could eventually get as high as 25% tariffs on Mexican imports until the Mexican government finally does its job and stems the flood of migrants to the southern U.S. border. Well, the issue has come up up on Capitol Hill at yesterday's traditional Tuesday lunch. Lawyers from the White House meeting with Republican senators. And let's just say the Republican senators don't like this idea very much. Uh, According to one report, not one actually likes the idea of tariffs against Mexico. Other reports suggesting that Republicans actually have the votes to override President Trump if he were to veto legislation striking down the tariffs. First of all, here's Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell following the lunch, being asked uh, what he thinks about the tariff. Well, there is uh, not much support in my conference for tariffs, that's for sure. But we appreciate the opportunity. We had an opportunity at lunch to talk to a number of representatives from the White House about this particular strategy. Uh, I think I can safely say most of us hope that this uh, Mexican delegation that's come up here and discussed uh, the, the challenges at the border and what the Mexicans might be able to do to help us more than they have will be fruitful and that these tariffs will not uh, kick in. And there are a variety of reasons why Republican senators are opposed to this, Jim. You've got folks like Ted Cruz saying this is just a huge tax increase, particularly on Texans, but on pretty much all Americans. And then you've got more of the first principles argument. Here's uh, Rand Paul, the other senator from Kentucky, talking about why he believes it's not the president's job to unilaterally implement these things. Really, tariffs, laws have to originate with Congress. And I think you just can't declare emergencies on spending, on tariffs, also on arms sales. They're now saying that they're going to sell arms to Saudi Arabia despite the objections of Congress. And so I think what you may be finding if we try to run government by emergency is it may solidify opposition. Even people like myself who are largely supportive of President Trump, largely supportive of his initiatives, I can't be for letting the president have all the power, though, that the Constitution gave to Congress. So, Jim, two good arguments here. It's essentially a tax hike. And it's not what the Constitution prescribes uh, for the most part. So what do you make of how Senate Republicans are responding to Trump's push for tariffs here? Yeah, there was a very interesting article in uh, The Atlantic yesterday. It was done by Elena Plott, who wrote for us in National Review a little while back. She talked to a lot of folks inside and outside the White House. And they kind of made the point that when President Trump finds himself in a tough spot, he generally pivots back to either the immigration issue or the trade issue. And it's almost like he said that some people describe it almost as security blanket. Now, we can argue this entirely separate from this argument of do you like tariffs, do you not like tariffs. We are now on the verge of trying to get congressional approval for the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, which replaced NAFTA, right? Now, there are, there are people who like the changes, people who don't like the changes. Some people say it's not that dramatic a change from the old NAFTA. But when you're trying to get everybody to sign on to this new agreement, you don't suddenly out of nowhere throw on new tariffs and big new tariffs. This is a, 
even people who are generally aligned with the president say, look, you can't do we're negotiate this trade agreement. Oh, by the way, separately, we're going to throw these other tariffs on. You're trying to do too many things at once. You're overloading the system. So the fact that, you know, look, there are lots of people who've argued that, look, the Republicans in Congress, particularly Republicans in Senate, have really given the president a lot of free reign to pursue the policies he wants to pursue. As the president has enacted these tariffs, you've seen more and more grumbling. I think you can safely argue that this has prompted a serious debate about whether the president should have so much unilateral power to enact tariffs. And oh, by the way, when he does so, he often does so claiming national security, and that's not really the way the national security uh, provisions of these sorts of uh, executive orders and things like that were meant to do. It wasn't supposed to be a do whatever you want and just say it's in the name of national security. So I'm glad to see Republican senators standing up on this. Again, if this is a good idea, make the case for it. You have to build consensus Otherwise, the presidency becomes a little too much like a, a royal decree. And uh, the other thing is also, if you're going to try to enact tariffs, don't do it while at the same time you're trying to get three different national legislatures to pass a trade agreement that you yourself have been urging them to pass. So what do you expect to actually happen here? You think Trump will uh, just simply not end up implementing the tariffs and the Senate won't have to do anything? Or will there actually be an intra-party fight here? You know, um, I, I'll be perfectly honest, Greg, I don't know. I do feel like the effect of these things is cumulative and that maybe there's a point in which a whole bunch of Republican senators are now ready to say, you know what, I've had enough. I've given the president, as I've backed him as much as I can. Now I really think he's pursuing policies that are going to be destructive to the economy. I love the, t- the tax cuts. I love the uh, push towards deregulation. But at some point, your tariffs and your sanctions and all the stuff you're throwing onto here uh, are going to start hurting the global economy, going to start hurting the U.S. economy. I think he's really skating on thin ice uh, with his support within the Republican Senate. So this may be the time that uh, uh, Republicans will say, all right, you know what, that's it. Sorry, Mr. President, I can't back you any further. Oddly enough, and interestingly, uh, the one senator who's publicly suggested it might be necessary, though he hopes it's not, is Marco Rubio. Uh, He tweeted out, the law provides the president broad authority to control transactions with other nations if there is an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and or economy of the U.S. Unlawful migration and drug flow transiting through Mexico into the U.S. clearly poses such a threat. I am hopeful this can be resolved without the need for Trump to use such authority. President Obrador will go down as a historic figure in Mexico history if he can help solve this. So, uh... Jim, it's that old border squish, uh, Marco Rubio, who might be the president's strongest <laughs> ally in the Senate here. Yeah, you know, and of course, ironically, Rand Paul, who would back the president on a bunch of fronts, uh, who's uh, being one of the biggest critics on this. So you never know. You know look, you know, that's one of the observations, I think, for a whole bunch of the arguments we've had about politics. The person who you're really mad at today is a good chance they could end up being your ally tomorrow. And similarly, the person who's your closest ally today could very well end up disagreeing with you tomorrow. So this is why you should try not to get too divided uh, or too divisive or too angry or, or lash out too much in any given political disagreement because you might need that person's help tomorrow. So let's move on to our middle martini. You choose. Choose your own adventure. Uh, This is the Orlando Sentinel. Scott Peterson, the former school resource officer at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, had been nationally heckled and vilified for failing to confront the former student who gunned down and killed 17 students and staff at the school on February 14, 2018. Peterson has now been booked into the Broward, Maine jail on 11 criminal charges, including child neglect, culpable negligence, and perjury. The investigation showed Peterson refused to investigate where the gunshots were coming from that day, retreated during the gunfire as victims were being shot, 
and directed other law enforcement who arrived on scene to remain 500 feet away from the building, according to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Quote, the FDLE investigation shows former Deputy Peterson did absolutely nothing to mitigate the MSD shooting, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, that killed 17 children, teachers, and staff, and injured 17 others. There can be no excuse for his complete inaction and no question that his inaction costs lives. And uh, according to the folks over at Hot Air, they're probably looking at a statute about neglect of a child. And one of the definitions is a caregiver's failure to make a reasonable effort to protect a child from abuse, neglect, or exploitation by another person. And uh, Jim, while we have certainly cheered the accountability finally being put upon folks at the Broward County Sheriff's Office, namely the now deposed Sheriff Scott Israel, some of his subordinates, including the captain who also ordered a bunch of folks to stand down, including first responders with ambulances, all the way down to Peterson himself. But the precedent this could be setting when it comes to law enforcement is concerning some other people. Here's Danny Savalos, a legal analyst over at NBC News. It's very unusual, and it arguably sets a dangerous precedent, one that incentivizes police away from their duties. Because the Supreme Court has said that when police are sued civilly, now remember, civilly is a lower burden of proof than criminal liability, that even inaction in the face of a known danger is not enough to get over that qualified immunity that police officers enjoy from being sued. So it sort of, it goes against the spirit of qualified immunity to suggest that inaction in this situation could result in criminal negligence, criminal culpability. So now, Jim, the debate uh, centers around what the right consequences are here. Obviously, you and I have been talking about the need for accountability for a long time. The question is whether this is the right way or the wrong way. What do you think? Everybody, I think, far across the political spectrum is livid with this guy and justifiably livid with this guy. So this is not really a, uh, oh, anyone's on any side of this cop, that he, he completely dropped the ball. His actions are inexcusable. Um, the question is, are they the sort of thing you can charge him with a crime over? And the short version is that this statute, this portion of the law, really has never been used in this form or even remotely close to this. This is not what the child neglect or statute is, is designed for. Now, on the one hand, I'm so mad about this that there's a, some part of my gut reaction when I first heard about this was, good, you go after this guy. You make an example out of this guy. And then I kind of asked a couple of my more legally minded colleagues when they were like, eh, this is really not what that law is designed to do. Um, I was like, well, is there any value to this in making an example out of this guy? It sort of is a deterrent to other cops in other situations to basically say, if you are a cop, we expect you to take action. We don't expect you to save the day. We don't expect you to be perfect. We know that uh, when you're in a, a live fire situation, that there's a, there's no guarantee that your shots will hit the right targets. There's no guarantee that you will get the bad guy. There's no guarantee the bad guy won't be able to kill more people. But if you're a cop, you're obligated to do something. You're obligated to try. Um, and my colleagues were like, well, this you, know, you generally don't prosecute someone in order to deter. Like That's not the only reason you prosecute someone. right? You're, you're trying to look at innocence or guilt. And did they violate the law? And kind of importantly, did their actions violate the law uh, under this sort of interpretation when they happen? In other words, you can't retroactively say, oh, we've decided this law, instead of requiring A, B, and C, now it requires X, Y, and Z, and we've decided to retroactively prosecute under that. So I really think this is going to open up a very big legal can of worms. 
Um, I, I almost wonder if this is a message from the prosecutor. We don't know if what you did was illegal, but we're so mad about it. We're going to try to prosecute you just to see what a jury says. And in the end, this is uh, maybe getting a little too close to pursuing vengeance instead of pursuing justice. So I, I, I'm st- I myself, I'm still kind of conflicted over this. For what it's worth, my more legal-minded uh, colleagues are kind of skeptical of this, that uh, you really can't take a section of law that is you know, designed to apply to one set of circumstances, apply it to completely different sets of circumstances, and then just hope for the best. And in fact, this is kind of that, this is going beyond the capacity. If you want to make something illegal, write it out in the statute what behavior is illegal. So um, we'll see. Uh, this is one of the more, you know, it's very rare, Greg, and I can't decide whether something's a good, bad, or, or crazy martini. I don't think any of those adjectives really summarize it well enough. Uh, so listeners, we leave it to you, but this is undoubtedly noteworthy. And as much as you might be, have that, you know, like I said, that instinctive reaction of get up, you know, I hate this guy. God, this he really deserves this. Uh, you know, we don't want to twist and turn the law inside out uh, in order to get that kind of, you know, deep emotional satisfaction. Yeah, it's difficult to see a guy potentially, I don't think he would ever get that much, but 100 years for not doing something as opposed to doing something is a little bit difficult to take. It almost reminds me a little bit of uh, the old Law & Order episodes when uh, the confession gets thrown out and Jack McCoy knows that there's still <laughs> blood in the water somewhere. So he goes in to talk to whoever the DA is, Fred Thompson or or uh, Adam Schiff, not the one who's in Congress now, and, uh, and and cooks up some other way to go after the defendant to make their life miserable. I hope that's not what's happening here. I hope that uh, people are doing their job appropriately, but it's certainly understandable that they want consequences to come down the pike here. You know, Greg, in every single one of the bad episodes of Law & Order, do you know what Fred Thompson always said? What? Well, Jack, I hope you know what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, everyone's like, well, Jack, I think you're wrong on this. So, you know, I, actually, towards the end, they let him get a little bit more active. And I have my sneaking suspicion is that Fred Thompson, the man, started influencing what I believe was it Jack Dalton, I think was the name of the DA he was playing. Much more plausible that this deep Southern guy would be elected uh, <laughs> the district attorney of Manhattan uh, post 9-11. The idea that they brought in some good old Southern boy to kick some tush. But anyway, yes, he really, really got, you know, there was a kind of wishy, more wishy-washy than he needed to be. And there were times where you could kind of root for the McCoy character to twist the law in new and innovative ways in order to get the right person. And then sometimes you'd be like, eh, you know, aren't the laws on the books sufficient? And if they aren't sufficient, isn't this a job for the legislature? All right, Jim, let's move on to our crazy martini now. And for the second straight day, we've got a sports angle to this one. And of course, as we always do here on the Three Martini Lunch, we're citing TMZ. Multiple NBA teams have had high-level conversations about doing away with the term owner over the past year, and at least two teams have already made the switch TMZ Sports has learned. We're told the conversations essentially center around the idea that the term owner, in a league where the majority of the players are black, feels racially insensitive. Several high-ranking sources from multiple teams tell us that people have been talking about the issue for a while, but it gained steam in late 2018 when Draymond Green appeared on LeBron James' show, The Shop, and argued against teams using the term. Quote, you shouldn't say owner, Green said, noting the title should be changed to either CEO, chairman, or something like majority shareholder. During the show, Jon Stewart, yeah, that one from The Daily Show, agreed and explained when your product is purely the labor of people, then owner sounds like something that is of a feudal nature. Around the time that episode aired, the Philadelphia 76ers made the decision to change their titles from owners to managing partners, and 76ers co-owners are now called limited partners. 
In Los Angeles, Steve Ballmer, who was billed as owner for the first couple of years after he took over the Clippers, is now listed as chairman on the team's website. Several teams are still using the term owner, and there's no real pressure coming from the NBA to change their titles. In fact, the NBA says, we refer to the owners of our teams as governors, and each team is represented on our board of governors, Jim. So it's kind of fascinating that uh, people who make, in some cases, north of $30 million a year are thought of in a feudal or slave-type context compared to the actual slavery context of the 1860s. I guess it's a little-known fact that uh, Dred Scott was trying to opt out of the last year of a max contract with the Atlanta Hawks and was looking for a shot with the Knicks or the Pacers. So uh, my, the first thing that comes to mind is you, know, you can say, ah, oh, we're changing the name from X to Y. Uh, now, by the way, every once in a while I make a reference to the Baltimore Colts, which is an <laughs> indicator that you can, <laughs> you can actually even literally change the location, but it will take some time before that change in terminology catches on. Um, so, you know, as I said, managing, I don't know. Do you think when Redskins fans complain, they're going to say, ah, you know, the problem with the team isn't the coach or the players. The problem is the general managing partner, Snyder. <laughs> doesn't really roll off the tongue, right? Like, ah, the darn Verstunken owner, you know, when I complain that Woody Johnson and the Christopher Johnson don't know what they're doing, it's not merely our relationship with the United Kingdom, since Woody Johnson is currently our ambassador to the United Kingdom. But it's also, no, no, the general managing partners don't know. <laughs> no, they're the owner. Fans call them owners. I mean, it'll be interesting to see a broadcaster say, oh, they're up in the box, in the uh, general managing partners box. You can see the general managing partner, you know, or, or uh, oh, there's Jerry Jones, the general managing partner. No, like, th- these guys are owners. You know why they call the, they're called owners? Because they own the team, <laughs> most of these cases. So... I suppose if I were a professional athlete, which obviously anyone who's looked at me knows that's light years away from ever happening, I guess I might like, I dislike the idea that somebody else owns me. But then again, you know, lots of people own companies, and that doesn't mean that they own the employees. The fact that you're getting paid a salary means that you're, you know, you're not owned and, and, and all that. So I, I, I suppose I can understand irritation with the term. Um, I do think that generally they've got bigger problems uh, among them. You know, the fact that nobody calls traveling anymore. Uh, <laughs> the idea that the, 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 this way, the idea that, you know, ah, the problem with the NBA is that owners are called owners. I, I don't really think that's really the biggest problem they need to worry about. And my suspicion is that despite everyone's intentions, this probably is never going to catch on anyway. Probably not. I go back to the contract issue because I'm pretty sure it's a voluntary arrangement that you play for a specific team. So uh, if that team has an owner, which they all do, or at least uh, at least one, if not multiple owners, you're agreeing to that arrangement. A lot of these people, depending on the value of the franchise, plunk down certainly hundreds of millions, if not north of a billion dollars for the franchise. But I guess the bigger question here is, and I don't think this is where Draymond Green was going with this necessarily, but... When it comes to the larger ideology of the left, they don't necessarily love the idea of ownership because things ought to belong to all of us. They ought to belong to the collective. So are we having a uh, semantics push here on the left in any way, do you think? Yeah, I was going to say there's there's two other kind of things that jump out of this. The first is the L.A. Clippers owner, uh, Donald Sterling. Right? We all remember the god-awful comments he made and, and all of that. When you see a sports owner portrayed in pop culture, Greg, do you usually see them as, you know, kind, generous, big hearted? <laughs> Generally, I don't know if you blame this on Steinbrenner. I don't know if you want to blame this on the iconic Jerry Jones or, or Al Davis. or th- Generally, sports team owners are seen as wealthy. I'm going to use the term jerks, and there are lots of other bad words that could go in there. 
Um, and, and you know, generally this is is that when when people become billionaires, one, they're used to people everyone around them telling them that their ideas are brilliant and that every idea that comes out of their mouth is golden and that everyone should listen to them. And they forget, they lose touch with reality and they end up becoming uh, uh, kind of, you know, ludicrous narcissist maniacs who, who, you know, run around believing that they can, you know, they can, they know what they're doing and that they, they start controlling the roster and they start playing fantasy football. And, you know, that's, maybe that's a little more close, maybe that's more specific to Dan Snyder than to others. <laughs> um, but the gist being that people already are inclined to not like owners. Now, the da- Donald Sterling gave the thing that, oh, in addition to just being, you know, a jerk, they can also be very racist and they can also very much behave like they own the players. Um, and kind of this attitude, you know, like, you can understand the irritation of the players who point out, look, if we don't show up, you can have the best coaches, you can have the best trainers, you can have the best guys selling hot dogs in the stands, you can have the finest arena in the whole wide world, the biggest scoreboard, you can have all that kind of stuff. But if we don't show up and play, nobody sticks around because we are we are the product. You know, in the end, when you say, you know, who, who, who owns the Los Angeles Clippers on paper, it's uh, first it was Sterling and then he sold it. I think it was that guy from Microsoft. Or something, you know. On paper, somebody else owns it. But who owns the Clipper? You know, who, who creates the Clippers? Who makes them what they are? It's the players. Um, so I think this is in the context of that kind of back and forth, you know, who really calls the shots and who really should be calling the shots uh situation and you know I, I could understand that if you know, if you were dealing with some sort of out of control narcissist um just calling him an owner might be uh frustrating because while he owns the team the individual players do not like the idea of someone else walking around thinking that they own them no that's exactly right so i'd say two things on that number one treat your people well no matter what your business is because you're going to find a lot more success that way so if you treat your players well i think you'll get better results that's certainly how mark cuban has uh, worked in dallas they went from a joke to nba champions within less than 15 years and the other thing that which is completely separate from the players is and this is just from a conservative standpoint is you're really rich people build your own stadiums and arenas don't tax the citizens who are going to end up forking over huge dollars for tickets and parking and concessions uh for that and then get stuck with that for years and years on end if you're that rich Build it yourself. Uh, you know, we, we could do this for hours. We could scream about this for hours. <laughs> but then it turns into sports radio, three martini lunch, and not actual, you know, politics and news of the day, three martini lunch. Uh, yes, we'll stop there. But uh, Jim, now that Woody Johnson is uh, the ambassador to England, uh, I, I'm guessing you're glad that he hasn't already put half of your home games in London just so he could have an easier job <laughs> getting to the game. No, there was a keep having that rumor that Jacksonville is going to do that sort of thing with uh, their owner Khan down there. Look, uh, there are a couple things. The good news is, is that, uh, yeah, maybe this has been a rebuilding year for the U.S.-U.K. relationship. Um, they, uh, we've had a lot of messages that were sent back and forth from our embassy back to the State Department, and apparently they were intercepted. Um, and apparently there's, you know, real questions about our defenses. But uh, that's, that's just all standard operating procedure when your organization is run by Woody Johnson. <laughs> Hey, if I can get a London pick of uh, Fireman Ed with the Queen, I think you'll have succeeded <laughs> to your wildest dreams. I like your dreams. crown, lady, but I like my crown better. <laughs> On that note, Jim, have a good day. We'll talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.